0: Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda. I'm a clinical psychologist. The goal of this podcast is to provide high quality, educational content related to MDMA assisted psychotherapy and in a broader sense, other psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. I will be talking with world's experts in this field. We will be talking about all kinds of issues. Hopefully, we can have some fun in the process. One thing that I would like to mention right now is that I will not be using any advertising to support this podcast. Uh, by now, I hope we all understand that advertising is at the heart of some of the troubles that we have with the internet these days. The click economy directly extremizes the content on the internet. Essentially, it puts tons of garbage in our brains. It preys on our basic instincts, such as fear or awe. I will not be contributing to that problem. So if you'd like to support the podcast, and I'd encourage you to do so, if you find it useful, please uh, visit my uh, donation page and uh, consider making a small monthly donation. This will likely carry the podcast forward. Enjoy. Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda and I'm here with Gul Dolan. Hi, Gul.
1: Hi. How's your
0: morning going so far?
1: (laughs) So far, so good. So
0: far, so good. That's great. Yep. So Gul is a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Johns Hopkins, by the way, is where uh, a lot of silo, most psilocybin research is being done and Gould is a part of that group. But Gould also has her own lab uh, where she studies uh, biological brain mechanisms underlying social behavior. And she studies brain mechanisms underlying social behavior from a broad perspective. So she uses evolutionary perspective She uses developmental perspective. She uses circuit perspective, which is how different brain structures are are wired. And she uses the synaptic perspective, which is the place where the neurons talk to each other. And uh, Gould is a serious scientist. And the way you know that she's a serious scientist is that she published in two most prestigious Scientific Journals, which is the Journal of Nature and the Journal of Science. And in 2019, last year, Gould became a celebrated personality in the MDMA-assisted therapy circles after she published an article in the Journal of Nature which explains how MDMA might heal broken bonds, broken connections. So this is a story of MDMA. This is a story of oxytocin. This is a story of love. It's a really good story. So here at Enhanced Therapy Institute, we are preparing for the medical delivery of DMA, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And to me personally, the this the hypothesis and the theory that Gould is working on Um, we call it oxytocin hypothesis, I'm not sure what you call it, is one of the most exciting theoretical developments related to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So if you're listening at this point, congratulate yourself, get a warm coffee, strap in, and enjoy. So we have a lot to cover, Gull, and um, I wonder whether it would be okay that we start with laying out the entire argument, the entire hypothesis. And then maybe later we'll we'll go into into the details of neurobiology and all that exciting stuff, just to, to to dig in a little bit more.
1: Yes, of course. Yeah. So um I guess the the way that I think about what we've discovered is is that MDMA reopens a critical period. And this is to me exciting beyond just the implications about social behaviors um, and the oxytocin part of the story and the bonding part of the story. Um, And let me explain a little bit why that is so exciting. Um, So neuroscientists have known for over 100 years that there are these Windows of time um, during maturation, during development, when the brain is expressly sensitive to the outside world. And so the first critical period to ever be described was this window of time in snow geese when um, they... uh, form a very strong bond to whatever um, moving object, usually that would be the snow geese mother, um, is in their environment. And that window of time where they form this imprinted attachment is very short. It's typically 24 to 48 hours. After that window of time, they don't form that long-lasting um, bond to to the mother Right and Conrad Lorenz is the First person who first used this term uh, Critical period to describe This window of time um, But since then we've Discovered that there are critical periods for all Sorts of other brain And the geese, the
0: geese are still following him The geese are <laughs> the string are still, of geese uh, Following Lorenz still all over the that's
1: world right. <laughs> That's right So I think it's sort of cool that the first critical period To des- be described was a social critical Period and probably the one that most people are familiar with is the critical period for language. Anybody who's tried to learn a second or third language as an adult knows that it's much harder. You have an accent, um, whereas the language you learned as a child is, is natural. You don't even remember learning it. You just did. And that Enhanced ability to learn from your environment is the language critical period, but there are other critical periods um, probably the one that's the most well studied the one that's won the most Nobel prizes is is the one for the visual system it's ocular dominance plasticity and. and for years, we've known about these and we've studied them with the hope that if we can understand the brain mechanisms, the circuits, the synapses, the neurotransmitters that are constraining these windows to specific time periods during development that um, we could reopen them in adulthood for therapeutic benefit, right? So the idea with the visual system, for example, is, is that if you were born um, and you were blind, perhaps you, have, you were born with cataracts in both eyes, um, and then you didn't have them removed before the end of the visual critical period, then removing the, ki- uh, the cataracts would not restore vision because the window of time when those uh, visual circuits are being organized is already closed. And so the idea there is if we could reopen the visual critical period, we could reopen the uh, window, the therapeutic window where we could restore vision to these kids. Okay, so this has just been a goal of neuroscience, at least for the last thirty or forty years, and there really hasn't been like a magic bullet, anything that allows us to open critical periods in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, there have we, you know there are some things that we can do in animals, but they're not really feasible to do in in a clinical mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. And so, so um, so, so that's di- sort of the today. background. Of,
0: Today, we're going to be talking about one of those critical periods, which is the critical periods for social bonding and for social learning, right?
1: That's right. And so that that critical period, actually, the reason that was a nature paper is because we discovered the critical period in that paper also. So it had never been officially described. Um, There had been some anecdotal evidence from, you know, very, you know, people noticing that teenagers are much more susceptible to peer pressure. In human studies, they've been able to look at, you know, very early uh, children versus adults and compared their likelihood of being uh, wanting social interactions or how they valued social interactions across development. But nobody had actually ever gone and shown that this has a very clear pattern and looked at multiple ages across development. So so that was the first the, the, thing so that that's, we did.
0: that's let's just just flag this here you not only discovered this that this is the critical period and what the underlying mechanisms are but you actually discovered potentially how to reopen this period safely yes this yes is yes. just let's stop here this might be if this is true this might be revolutionary i think so
1: yeah, I think it's, it's remarkable. We should have a
0: little cry here or something like that. <laughs> I feel like I feel tears coming to my eyes, honestly. I mean, I, I, I feel that because I know what the story is a little bit, but yeah. oh my gosh, this is amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, when we first when we first discovered it, um, I told a friend of mine who's a human um, who does both mouse and rodent work and studies in humans, uh, Linda Wilbrecht. And she was like, you have to present this at a conference for, you know, human cognitive science and development. And I was like, oh, they're not going to want to hear this. Um, And I went to the conference and literally talk after talk after talk was like, and this evidence supports the idea that there might be a critical period for social, yeah. but we haven't discovered it yet. Uh, and then I was like the last talk and everybody was like, oh my God. Oh so my yeah, God. it was really exciting.
0: So <laughs> amazing. I'm so excited to be talking to you, Gu. Yeah. That's great. Really Let's great. do it. Okay. So there's a critical period for social bonding. Tell yes. us more about so, when, what, how it goes, and what goes up, but, because there's a critical period, and the important part of it is also that afterwards, that critical period is gone.
1: Yeah. So let me just describe the experiment we do to measure this social reward learning critical period. Um, so I have to give credit to my postdoc, um, Roman Nardu, who um, really did all of this this, um, painstaking, incredibly tedious, uh, work, but you know, Really was so dedicated to getting you know this amount of data to make a uh, make a clear case that this is in fact a critical period. So the experiment is we we measure something called social conditioned place preference, and so what we do is we measure the amount of time a young animal or an adult animal, an animal a mouse, um, spends in each of two types of bedding that they've never seen before, and then we pair one of those two types of beddings with the um, animal's uh, social uh, group members. So peer peer social interactions, just with the animals it's living with. And that's paired with one of the two types of bedding. And then the other type of bedding they live on for 24 hours without their social group mates. So just by themselves. And then afterwards, we ask how much time do they spend on each of the two types of bedding? And the the when they have a learned association of something positive with one of the two types of bedding, then they spend more time in that type of bedding. And so that Conditioned place preference assay has been used historically to measure the reward value or how much animals like things like cocaine or amphetamine or opioids. And this place preference is, is the way that we measure what an animal likes. Okay. And so um, this assay had been invented not by us. Um, we just adapted and have been using it for the last several years Um and um, this just uses social instead of cocaine or any of the drugs of abuse. And so mice, juvenile mice, so um, starting from when they get weaned, so postnatal day 21 in a mouse, which is approximately in a human, you know, a young child. Um, and they do this social reward learning very robustly, and they spend significantly more time in the social bedding. Um All the way, um, it peaks at around postnatal day 42, which in the human is approximately equal to 14, 15 years old. 15 years old, okay. Yeah, so it's sort of, they're just right around puberty. They've reached, they can, you know, they're sexually mature, but they're not, you know, adults by any means, right? And so, um, and then, and then after it peaks at that, that, Postnatal day 42, it starts to come down. And by the time they're young adults, it's really come down to almost no preference one way or the other. And in adulthood, it's gone. So in adulthood, they basically spend the same amount of time in each of the two types of men. Okay. And we what we think that means is that not that they don't care about social interactions at all, it's just that they're no longer learning about their world um, based on social cues. So the way I explain this, you know, relate it back to what it's like in, in human interactions when you're a teenager you know you're trying to become part of a group right so you care a lot about fitting in with that group you decide what you want to wear what you're going to what music you're going to listen to what you know uh, academic pursuits you're going to have what kind of you know um uh Uh, extracurricular activities you're going to do a lot based on the social cues that you get from the people that are in your social group who you care about who you want to impress but as you get older your social group is already established you know if you're someone like me you're a scientist so you're nerdy and you don't care about you know certain things that other social groups care about and so you know you kind of forego the um cool-looking shoes and you wear the comfortable shoes that you can stand around in the lab all day and, and you know, so you stop caring so much about what others are, uh, those social signals uh, in your decision-making and you, you focus on other things. So that's basically what we think the critical period for social reward learning is used for um, as, we, as we establish our membership in a group
0: so it's used to establish our basic patterns of connecting with others and and we establish those patterns early on in our lives all the way up to adolescence and in adolescence especially we establish peer peer kind of bonds right okay so
1: yeah so we we were excited about that and we had um when we saw that developmental pattern um you know we decided Previously, in a a much earlier uh, Nature paper in 2013, when I was a postdoctoral scholar um, at Stanford, I had described that um, the uh, social reward learning uh, was correlated to a type of synaptic plasticity in the nucleus accumbens that is induced by oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to, in this paper, look to see if that synaptic plasticity that is induced by oxytocin is also following the, following the same developmental pattern. Mm-hmm. Is the, the behavior, the learning and memory uh, behavior, is maximum in adolescence yep. and gone in adulthood? And is it, the, is it true that the plasticity is also maximum in adulthood and gone in adulthood? So let me, let me just back up a second and explain that um, when a neurobiologist like me talks about synaptic plasticity, we're referring to a very specific phenomenon. So we're, we're, we're referring to the ability of a synapse to change its, uh, the weights of how much a single stimulation causes um, what kind of a response in the postsynaptic cell. And that can be modified in either direction. It can be either potentiated or depressed. And those are called LTP and LTD. And there's two types of plasticity, synaptic plasticity are the two main kinds, LTP and LTD, right? And so when I say synaptic plasticity, that's what I'm talking about. A lot of people in sort of, especially on the clinical side of things, kind of refer to basically anything that changes over time as plasticity. Mm. And I, I sort of, resists that because to me that definition is so broad it basically loses the meaning of plasticity if we're if we're not talking about something specific if we're just talking about anything physiological that changes over time right so when i'm talking about it i'm talking about this very Very specific.
0: specific definition of plasticity okay
1: OK. Um, and so um, and then plasticity itself, the magnitude, how much plasticity you can get at a synapse also changes over development. So what we were able to show is, is that while oxytocin is in, able to induce a big synaptic plasticity in juveniles, in adults, it doesn't really seem to uh, uh, uh induce any kind of plasticity at all so we got no change from baseline when we do it in adulthood and so that plasticity of plasticity if you will is called metaplasticity um and but i don't i don't want to confuse too sure. much by Absolutely. by introducing too many terms but basically what we found is is that the magnitude of synaptic plasticity um, it corresponds to the magnitude of social behavioral learning that we see in the animal. So we got a correlation between the behavior and what's happening at the synapses um, in response to oxytocin.
0: Okay. So to, to what extent then do you think, I mean, we will be talking about neurobiology, et cetera, et cetera. Would it be fair then to, to also talk about broader terms of, of learning here and, uh, and, and, and social learning and our rela- and establishing our relational re- relational patterns the the fact that our relational most of our relational patterns are established earlier in our lives uh, during our adolescence our peer relationships uh, uh, are established and then as we go through adulthood of course there's almost always a degree of learning but for the most part, uh, We sort of like repeat ourselves. We just do the same thing. We relate in the same ways. And so the the question from the therapeutic point of view is that when we suffer injury and when we suffer trauma early on, we develop relational patterns that that we adapt to that trauma in a certain way. And as, as we adapt to that trauma, we develop relational patterns that are not really serving us so well. So then as the the plasticity of the brain, and I just, I want to put it back to you. I just want to tell you what what my thinking is and you can tell me whether that's right. Mm -hmm. As the plasticity of the brain decreases in terms of social learning, then we go through life, repeat ourselves, and then we uh, essentially set up conditions uh, for failure in, in, in bonding. You know, if we are overly dependent, for example, on... Uh, and and starved for love, and we will be projecting that dependence and that neediness. For example, in our kind of attachment patterns in adulthood, other people might find it a little bit too much, and they will they will uh, kind of move away from us, which will set up conditions for rejections, further rejection and abandonment, perceived rejection and abandonment, which for, further kind of solidifies the same pattern. So, uh, I, I just want to introduce that other side, you talking about the the biology. And I just wonder whether is it fair to be talking and extrapolating from your argument to that kind of thinking?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that is definitely an avenue that I'm interested in pursuing. We don't have specific evidence about that yet. There's some evidence in the literature that, uh, for example, if you have a injury, a traumatic injury of um, social nature, um, it, when you're a child, you're much more likely to um, develop addiction later on in life. But also, if you have something that causes PTSD and you had the injury as a child, the PTSD is Tends to be much more severe than if you had the injury um, in adulthood, and that suggests, as that to me, that what is happening is is that because you had the injury during that window of time when you're much more sensitive to the social world, you know, it managed to. Um, entrench a certain type of behavior that was, you know, maybe adaptive and able to protect you in the moment that the injury was happening. But um, as you get older, that adaptive response becomes less and less adaptive until you get into adulthood, where you are essentially behaving in a way that, um, introduces more isolation, more barriers to Mm -hmm. your uh, ability to interact with people. And so if that ends up being true, then we're going to, I think that way of seeing things will also help us to use this reopening of a critical period, perhaps to Uh, Go back and readdress some of those childhood injuries or childhood traumas and rewrite the memories around those events um, so that you can start to build those new patterns of. Self-assessment and self-relation, self-other relations, um, and and so that that's definitely how we're thinking about it. But we don't have concrete evidence for that yet. Um, I think the first step in my mind was to establish that there was a critical period, and then use that as a jumping-off point to test all of these other um, ways of thinking about it. But honestly, my work. Um, uh, you know, for the last 22 years, I've really been focused on autism. And so one of the other things that I've been thinking about, like what this critical period tells us yeah. is, is that, you know, when we, uh, when I was a PhD student in Mark Bear's lab, um, I had uh, worked on an idea, a hypothesis called the m theory of fragile X and autism. And this idea was, you know, ba- basically that there's a biochemical imbalance in autism. And if we can correct that imbalance, we can correct all of the symptoms of, of autism that we measured in mice. And so we did that. A lot of people got excited about it. Several very large cl- uh, clinical trials were done by Novartis and Roche and uh, some smaller uh, companies. And the clinical trials failed. And this was a big disappointment to oh, everyone okay. in the field. And And one of the ideas as we were going through and trying to understand why it had worked in 28 different labs in mice but then didn't work in humans was that we realized that all of the mouse studies were done very early in development, all of the manipulations, the restoring of MGRs was uh, of UNGLU, our functioning was happening early in development, whereas the human trials all happened in adults. So the idea is, is that maybe we corrected the imbalance, but because there is this social reward learning critical period, by the time we got to correcting that imbalance in humans, that window had closed. And so just like the situation I described with um, blindness and cataracts, is, is that because even if you remove the cataracts, or in this case, um, Restore the balance of mGluRs um, in the in the synapse, um, because the critical period is closed. You can't um, correct the social impairments that characterize the disease. But the, so that was another motivation for this um, critical period description. Okay,
0: and but the story that uh, that that we are talking about right now is slightly different because you mm-hmm. you you did have some. Success with with the study. Maybe you could continue describing right, describing sure. the the research and what the what were yeah. the interventions and.
1: Right. Yeah. So basically, uh, with the MDMA uh, studies, the reason that we focused on MDMA is because we knew from the um, literature that. Uh, oxytocin does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So even though people have tried to use intranasal oxytocin to get it into uh, the brain, you know, it basically doesn't get into the b- uh, brain by that method. Whatever oxytos- intranasal oxytocin uh, effects people are reporting are probably happening in the systemic uh, circulation. And so even though we had identified this oxytocin mechanism, we just didn't think it was going to be clinically viable to try and trigger those oxytocin with anything given peripherally.
0: So so when you say that it doesn't cross blood brain barrier, you mean that it doesn't get from blood, oxytocin is a hormone, doesn't get from blood to the synapses. Is that correct? That's right. Okay.
1: That's right. So, it, when you give it either IV or um, intranasally, it circulates in your blood, yes. but there's a border between um, the blood that is able to get to your brain and the blood that's able to go to the rest of your body, yeah. and those um, that sort of barrier... Uh, prevents a lot of drugs from being able to get into the brain. And that is, you know, a, both a protective mechanism for the brain, but also is able to compartmentalize different functions. Yeah. And I can talk more about that um, and what we think the two different types of oxytocin are, but that's another paper. That that, that's, we just published. that's another paper, yeah. but, <laughs> but
0: in general, oxytocin is the hormone that is Uh, postulated to play a very major role in social bonding, as well as rewiring the social brain, creating that plasticity. That's
1: right, Right. that's right. And so we think that, um, so we were, even though we had identified this oxytocin mechanism in the the brain at the synapses um, of the nucleus accumbens, we uh, didn't think that we would be able to tap into that mechanism with oxytocin itself. But we knew from the literature that there was this anecdotal evidence in two or three papers suggesting that when you give MDMA, um, it causes the oxytocin neurons to start firing and release lots of oxytocin. And we knew from much earlier work that MDMA has these very acute pro-social effects. So people on MDMA really love to be social. Mm-hmm. They love to cuddle. They love um, all of these things that are um, sort of make MDMA different from the other uh, psychedelic drugs. They, they, it's really sort of special in that way, because while d- drugs like LSD and psilocybin, you know, also open people up to interconnectedness feelings, um, you know, it's not typical that, um at a party where people are doing these drugs, that they would ever form a cuddle puddle, yes, which is you know yes. thirty people hugging each other, you know, in the hot sun, <laughs> it doesn't look very appealing. But on MDMA, people love that kind of thing. People so, love um, yes, yeah, yeah. And so um, we were excited that maybe this would be a way that we could sort of circumvent the problem of oxytocin not getting into the brain by just using MDMA. So the first thing that we did is to test whether or not MDMA is able to induce the synaptic plasticity that oxytocin was inducing, and it did. Um, And then we worked on uh, several details of that, which I won't really go into, but sort of how that happens and what... Synapses are involved. And so we worked on that. But once we sort of felt confident that MDMA was able to trigger this oxytocin release at the synapses that we were concerned with, um, we then asked the question if we give MDMA in the adult animals, remember at this age, they are not, they are no longer showing this social reward learning. But if we give the MDMA and then we wait for 48 hours, and the idea there is we don't want to measure the acute prosocial effects of MDMA because that has. Already been shown in other studies, um, including our own in species ranging from octopuses to humans, right? So we already know that it has this acute prosocial effect. But what we wanted to know here is once that acute prosocial effect we're, wears off, does this Bring back the behavioral plasticity um, in in the adult animals, and it does. so forty eight hours after we give the acute effective M- uh, acute dose of MDMA, the social reward learning in adulthood is the same. it's it's the same magnitude as what it was when um, the animals were juveniles. And so that to us was super exciting. And I just want to point out that the there are a couple features of this that are so. Uh, cool and important to me. One is that One is that, um, you know, it might have been that we gave the MDMA and they just had a really good party in their cage and they just remembered how fun it was to be social and that all we're really measuring is is that their memory, that it's fun to be social. If that was the case, then we would have expected a drug like cocaine to also be able to open the critical period. And cocaine did not open the critical period, right? So cocaine, even though it's rewarding and reinforcing and has this ability to make mice and humans um, more likely to be socially engaged at a party did not reopen this critical period. And that the reason that's so important and exciting to me is one other, um, sort of nuance, but I I really want to get this point across because I think it's what differentiates our studies from sort of other studies that have been trying to figure out what is going on with psychedelics and how they have these remarkable therapeutic effects. And the thing is, is that people have focused in on plasticity as a possible mechanism for why psychedelics are working. Um, but, you know, cocaine also indu- induces synaptic plasticity. It also induces changes in dendritic spine morphology so the neurons will sprout. And that type of plastic effect of cocaine is sort of related to why cocaine is such an addictive drug, or at least that's what we have theorized about it, right? So the fact that, you know, MDMA and and cocaine um, um, might both be uh, uh, working at the level of synapses, doesn't? And and synaptic plasticity and altering synaptic plasticity does not mean that they are both equally able to reopen critical periods. And so. That's why I would say that what I think we've discovered is really about reopening critical periods. We're restoring the brain to an open state for plasticity, not necessarily the plasticity itself, right? right. And so I think that's what makes MDMA special and um, you know really, really um, interesting as a therapeutic.
0: So MDMA, the effects of DMA uh, last a few hours and then, and then, forty-eight hours after you, you're saying that uh, the MDMA uh, pretty much wears off to some, you know, to to a great extent. But the plasticity remains and 48 hours later, the, brain, the, 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 the mice and, you know, we just assume people are still more open to learning and still forming new connections, new patterns of relating. So there is the therapeutic, here's the therapeutic window is, is getting longer. Is it even longer than 48 hours?
1: Yes. So that's another thing that we wanted to look at is how long does this reopen state last? And so we looked at one week, two weeks and four weeks after the initial MDMA dose. And what we found is, is that it stays open at least two weeks, but by a month it's closed again. And so I don't want to give the impression that that's that it's just two weeks in a human because we don't have a really good way of um, uh, you know, calibrating the timeline in a, a mouse uh, life yes. and a human life. But roughly the way that we do it is, is we say, OK, well, a mouse lives two to three years, whereas a human lives, you know, 80 to 90 years. And so roughly we estimate that two weeks in a mouse might be the equivalent of two months to a year in humans. Um, so we don't actually have a good sense of how the timeline maps on to humans, but what we know is, is that um, this window of plasticity or this, win- this critical period stays open for a long time. And so I think what that suggests in terms of how we design clinical trials for this is, is that right now, all of the focus in clinical trials is really on the what happens during that acute MDMA therapy session. And what this really suggests is, is that we really need to be focusing a lot on what happens during that those integration sessions right. that, you know, happen for one, two, three, four weeks after the uh, MDMA session. And that really that's a therapeutic opportunity that we're missing if we just send people home with a journal and say, see ya.
0: Absolutely, and, and the therapeutic possibility that uh, people might be missing when they use MDMA recreationally in, in some settings without that integration component. By the way, just let's throw, uh, for people who uh, have never listened to, uh, don't know much about integration therapy, about about MDMA-assisted therapy, just very quickly, MDMA-assisted therapy consists of, uh, there's a screening first, you know, just to find out whether you you're a good candidate for it. Then there's preparation sessions. And then there's the, the dosing session, and then after the dosing session, so the dosing session is where you use MDMA, and then after the dosing sessions, you have so-called integration session sessions, and so MDMA assisted therapy and other psychedelic assisted therapies are often referred to as integration therapies because the point, and that's a very important point, and I just every time wanna repeat it, is that the point. Of MDMA assisted therapy is not so much to 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 have an MDMA trip, which you know in itself uh, nothing wrong about it, perhaps. But the idea is that you, uh, you MDMA experience change uh, gives you these new opportunities for for learning in uh, social learning social bonding and then the the idea is that you integrate this experience into your everyday life through the therapeutic integration process afterwards so your theory is extremely relevant extremely relevant it points out you just said that it might be up to a year that one MDMA administration might have an effect, actual physiological effect up to a year. This is a hypothesis, but I just want to point out to people that Gould is not making these hypotheses because she she's been studying this and there has been a host of research studying, developing methodologies for these things. So what we hear is just an iceberg of of uh, years and years of very rigorous lab research that has been done, so um, uh, so the integration period. Uh, I just wanted to 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 throw that whole idea of integration in there and and, and clarify it. Uh, you can. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. So I just want to point out one other little aspect of this. Um, you said that it's not just that the integration is important it's also i think we need to focus a little bit take a step backwards and and think about the session itself and the importance of set and setting yes so this is something a feature of psychedelics that has been really difficult to explain um, in terms of traditional notions of pharmacology and how the brain works um and um and yet, we know that you know if you just take a bunch of MDMA and go to a rave, you're probably not going to spontaneously recover from PTSD. In fact, there's no literature. Uh, there's nothing in the literature to suggest that um, you know if you're in a mindset of a party or you know going to um, or the setting of a rave that that is conducive to uh, PTSD therapy. Instead, what the therapists over you know decades of uh, you know, working with patients have really honed in on is, is that during that, um, that preparation session, I think what they're doing is essentially priming the brain to think about the right set of memories, right? And so in neuroscience, when we talk about the neurons that connect to each other across the brain, that make up the, 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 the circuit of neurons that encode a particular memory, we call that an engram, right? So what I think the preparation session is doing is activating or bringing to sort of uh, the attention of your mind those engrams that are relevant to the trauma. And then during the session, I think what the psychedelic or MDMA in particular is allowing the brain to do is to sort of aimlessly wander all of the space of that engram and kind of bring it back up and cause that engram to be activated. In the context of an open open critical period, that engram reopen that ngram activation is what we in neuroscience call sort of uh, coincidence detection. It's the way that synaptic plasticity is thought to happen as a way to um, uh, correlate different things that are happening at the same time um, and enforce a certain type of memory, whereas things that don't happen at the same time, don't get um, connected to each other, right? So I think that the the during the session and the importance of the setting or the set of the mindset of the person is is about that is about bringing to the forefront the relevant engram. And so one thing that I think is really cool about our studies is is that this is the first time anybody has replicated this component of the therapeutic efficacy of mdma in a mouse model in a in an animal model so what we find is is that the mdma um, opens the critical period if we give the mdma to the mice when they're in a social setting but if we give them mdma while they're in by themselves in the cage then it doesn't reopen that's them. a
0: very very important point gul very important point
1: yeah. And we think that this is different, for example, than people who have tried to explain the therapeutic effects of MDMA focused only on its ability to attenuate social anxiety or suppress um, you know, anxious uh, the amygdala's ability to encode anxiety-provoking memories. That's kind of where people were really focused their attention on because, and it made sense. You know, PTSD uh, is thought to be a disease where the amygdala is it's overactively near, yes. encoding um, memories. But uh, and and we know that oxytocin and MDMA seem to yep. help to um, suppress those those fear memories. But those types of responses don't are context independent, right? right? And so they don't capture this aspect of the therapeutic efficacy of these drugs. And so that's why we think that this critical period explanation does a better job of accounting for the various features of the therapeutic efficacy. Absolutely.
0: And I I did want to talk to you about this, about these two kind of main mechanisms in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with, with trauma. The main mechanism that is, the main explanation that is being used is being the explanation of fear reduction because traumatic memories cause avoidance be, avoidance because they are very stressful and they create a lot of distress so we avoid naturally that distress and with the mdma uh, the fear is reduced so then we can approach those memories we can reprocess during that time where the there is there is no fear and etc etc so there's this uh, and then you know those memories get integrated and the idea is that afterwards they they are not as memories are still there exactly the same but they are not as stressful so basic kind of exposure idea uh, exposure treatment for for trauma that's a very it's a it's probably exposure by the way is probably one of the biggest concepts in psychotherapy i can't think about anything more straightforward and more powerful than exposure when it comes to anxiety and trauma Uh, and then what you're bringing in though is that it's the social component and the social healing that that, it, that might be happening with the administration of mdma new development of new healthy social patterns of connecting actually learning how to love and how to be loved and then uh, perhaps what you are saying if i understand you correctly which i've you know i've been thinking about as well is that perhaps even the trauma treatment current trauma treatment the 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 MAPS is currently uh, just about to release some amazing news about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. What you're saying is that it might have to do with the fear reduction to some extent, but it might even more have to do with the fact that trauma patients are creating healthy bonds during their trauma treatment, healthy bonds with their therapist and hopefully healthy bonds outside of therapy, which is another very important thing to talk about, set and setting. And then there's the set and setting after therapy. What do you go to? So, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's really exciting. I, there's one more little implication of this set and setting um, dependence of our being able to reopen the critical period that I, you know, want to touch on. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting, if, just in thinking about the future of where we're going with all of this. Right now, in sort of the research space, there's Sort of a debate going on. On the one hand, there are people, mostly pharmacologists and pharmaceutical companies, who are arguing that what we really need to do is figure out the mechanism of these psychedelic drugs. And that if we can do that, we can give these drugs in a way that uh, and find a way to. Just do the therapeutic part and get rid of all of the psychedelic side effects, right? So that's their dream is to get rid of the psychedelic side effects. And then on the other hand, you have um, people who are coming at this more from the psychotherapeutic side of things um, who say, no, 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 no. The psychedelic journey is critical, and in fact, we think that the magnitude of the mystical experience during the psychedelic journey is um, corresponds to the efficacy or the ability of these drugs to induce um, uh, the the therapeutic effects that we're after. And furthermore, we can get to those mystical states not just with pharmaceuticals pharmacotherapies or psychedelics but also through you know holotropic breathwork or um, some of these mystical states that some of the religious uh, communities have been using. And so what I think that this explanation offers is potentially a way to reconcile those two viewpoints because what I think is happening is is that the psychedelics are indeed reopening this critical period, and that is a mechanism that we could potentially um, identify and isolate separate from the sort of psychedelic journey aspects of it. But we probably don't want to because it's what the way that I'm thinking about it is the psychedelic journey is, in fact, that setting that set and Mm -hmm. setting. Right? right and that that is the way that um we activate the right memories right because if all you do is reopen the critical period and then not activate the right memories it just closes back up and that's it nothing, nothing happens, happens. Right. Just like if you've reopened, let's say that MDMA does more than just reopen this critical period. Let's say it opens all of the critical periods, which is something we're testing. We haven't got any evidence to support that view yet, but we're working on it. But let's say it opens all of them. Um, Why is it that you don't like learn spontaneously, learn French after an MDMA? Because you
0: need to actually learn French.
1: (laughs) And so we think that the the psychedelic journey is actually really going to be critical for identifying the traumatic memories in at the same time as the open state of the critical period so that's why we we love this set and setting finding when when
0: we talk about set and setting a part of is it is that you need to have a positive bonding experience to learn to bond in a positive way you can't learn to bond in a positive way outside of actually having the positive bonding experience. So that's when you talk about psychedelic journey. In this case, we're talking about MDMA and about social bonding. So um, by the way, I just recently talked to uh, Rick Doblin and uh, uh, on 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 this podcast. and uh, and Rick, uh, Rick mentioned that uh, with psilocybin and LSD, of course there's this uh, uh, this aspect of uh, of spiritual experience. Uh, but that MDMA does not have that. And Rick was very uh, animate about emphasizing that that MDMA, that their, their research shows that MDMA does not have that kind of aspect. that it's a it's a very social drug that uh, psilocybin, the way I understand it, and LSD, is way more about, you know, a, a way more about connecting with kind of everything, universe, nature. And uh, and and perhaps humans, but also known for producing uh, more anxiety and more paranoia in social situations. Uh, MDMA does not produce paranoia generally or anxiety in social situations, the opposite. And so there's a little bit of a difference between also psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA, especially when we talk to mystical experience, one, and two, about... About social bonding, that there's slight differences. Right, that's right. There.
1: Yeah, there are slight differences, but what I think that um, is exciting to me is is that despite those differences, the set and setting matters for both. Oh, right. Yes. So both the LSD effects and the psilocybin effects and the MDMA effects all are sort of set and setting dependent, and so it might be that they arrive at activating the right engram in different ways, right? So maybe MDMA is not causing a mystical experience, but through some other mechanism is through perhaps through oxytocin is, you know, reactivating the appropriate social engrams, right? Um, But um, I think the idea, and, and this is something actually, as we start to think about what's next for our research, we want to understand is... Is this unique to MDMA or do the other psychedelic drugs also do this reopening of this critical period? And, and I already mentioned uh, for this, social bonding and,
0: specifically, you mean, or other?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for social for social reward learning, yes. do we can we reopen this critical period with other psychedelics or is it just MDMA? And then conversely, I sort of mentioned this already, we want to look at other critical periods. Is this a universal feature of MDMA that it's able to reopen critical periods across the brain from, you know, somatosensory and motor and prefrontal and all these other brain regions? maybe so that to me is an exciting direction that we definitely are pursuing so
0: so exciting so exciting D, did you want to add I, I I want you have a little bit a little a little bit more time mm-hmm. yeah I would yeah, I yeah. wouldn't mind going a little bit into like kind of doing a little bit of a, a neurobiology for dummies uh, okay. but uh, but before we move to that in the, the, the kind of general uh, neurobiology lesson um, is there anything that you think is important to add to this argument that MDMA opens the... Uh, because we could return to this argument with a little bit more details once we cover the the basis, the kind of how how, how neurobiology works, how synapses work and all that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I think we covered the major points. Yeah. Um, I, you know, if you want me to, you know... I open it sure. up i can but, uh, yeah. okay so how could you
0: open it up i i have some idea you know because i'm one of those dummies so first of all uh, there's uh, am, am i correct and think there's we're talking about three different molecules here so one is a medication a drug something we we take ex- externally uh that is supposed to you know affect us in some good way heal us then you have hormones and then you have neurotransmitters, neuromodulators. So let's just, you know, we have neurotransmitters. So, could you just briefly talk about these three things and what they are and how they work?
1: Yeah. So, um, first, let me just say that, um, you know, hormone is a specific designation for a molecule that is able to get into the cell and typically works by um, getting into the nucleus. And so, um, when people talk about oxytocin, they typically say it's a peptide hormone-like, but it's not really like a hormone hormone. Um, so um, the main, the oxytocin is a, is a peptide, which means it's made from the DNA and converted from DNA to mRNA and mRNA into protein. Okay. So it's something that's completely synthesized by the, the cells in the brain. Um, those cells live in the hypothalamus. Um, Whereas uh, serotonin is is a molecule that is converted from- So it's synthesized by
0: neurons or by other cells, by-
1: By by neurons. By neurons, synthesized in
0: hypothalamus and then released by pituitary gland. Is that correct, oxytocin? So
1: oxytocin is released from those oxytocin neurons in the hypothalamus, and there are two kinds. One of them is called magnocellular, and the other is called parvocellular. And a quick way to remember magno and parvo is that magno, I call it the mad love oxytocin neurons, and parvo, I call the platonic love oxytocin neurons, okay? So the mad love neurons are basically everything that you think of when you think of love, right? So big, big love, everything is roses. You don't even notice that he doesn't put the toilet seat down. You're just like happy and (laughs) think he's great right and you think the baby's great and you don't even notice that it smells like poop and that it woke you up at you know the middle you of the night you just all over like the poop. toilet
0: seat <laughs> you're just like, hey, that's yeah you're just like
1: oh they're those babies those men they're just great all you know right. those, that's that's kind of mad love right? right whereas, whereas parvocellular neurons are a little bit more love in moderation you know so um i uh You know, I borrow Michael Pollan's um, description of how to eat uh, to describe the way that parvo encodes, um, parvo-oxytocin neurons encode love. I I say, you know, fall in love, not too much, mostly friends. Um, So that's the way that I think of the parvo neurons, okay? And the main difference between them in terms of circuitry is whereas the magnocellular oxytocin neurons send their axons to the pituitary and to the central nervous system. So, in the posterior pituitary, they release oxytocin into the bloodstream, and it just circulates all around, and in women, it causes lactation, it causes uterine contractions during labor and delivery, Um, whereas the, 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 the oxytocin released by magnocellular neurons that gets into the brain, it releases... By this special mechanism called somatodendritic release, it just releases like a ton of oxytocin and it bathes the whole cerebrospinal fluid in oxytocin and it just kind of floats around and gets wherever it can through that. That's the
0: mad love part.
1: That's the mad love part. And that's I'm
0: I'm just trying to imagine my skull being like all. <laughs> Feels good, but just to think about it, you know. <laughs> I think yeah, you're preparing yeah. me for the MDMA, you know, for some sort of a training where I will be yeah. oh, good, 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 good. Yeah, good.
1: And, and you know, I think uh, Anne Shelgen actually talks about this. Uh, she says, you know, love is an altered state, and this is, I think, what she's talking about. Oh, yeah. This sort of this uh, bathing yeah. your whole brain in in yeah. this love uh, peptide, yeah. and so. This type of release is um, sort of volume was tra- what we call volume transmission. It's basically like getting everywhere, and um, you know the and and it really does cloud your judgment in yes. a way, right? Like it just makes everything. Seem Great. And we think that the ability of it to release simultaneously in the central nervous system and the systemic circulation is what allows you to have coordinated responses. So like when you see your baby and your baby is nursing, that causes the oxytocin to be released in the brain, which causes you to bond with your baby. And that Causes a feed-forward reflex to cause you to release more milk, mm-hmm. and that's great. Yep. And when you're when you're falling madly in love, that coordinated systemic and um, central response, I think, makes yes. the bonding much more efficient and powerful mm-hmm. and strong. Much more
0: powerful, yes. But when
1: and and, and yeah, uh, but when you're.
0: Yeah. I just just want to say, you know, I, I'm a psychotherapist, so I see lots of clients on a regular basis. And uh, one of my one one of those things that you always say to clients who are in love is that you know I, I don't want to spoil their trip, you know. But you are on drugs right now, so maybe maybe live with that person for a year before you have babies with them, you know. But enjoy yeah. enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a lovely feeling, right? Um, but you know. Um, So, but on the other hand, the other, the parvo neurons, I think are encoding a different type of social interaction. And this is the one where, you know, when you're forming your group memberships, you want to be a little bit more, Nuanced, you know, when you're evaluating who you're going to let into your group, you want to decide, um, you know, are they going to have my back when I need it? Um, Are they good cooperators? Do they contribute to the group? Are they trustworthy? Are they, um, you know, compassionate? Are they going to be there for the group when we need it? Right. And so this ability to form an attachment, but be much more um, sort of reserved and conscientious and you know, allow some decision making to happen is probably adaptive for those types of social interactions because you don't want to let any psychopaths sure. into your group. Yes. Right. And um, and furthermore, you know, it would be sort of inconvenient if you're rocking down the hall and you see your best friend and you want to let them know that you're happy to see them and you suddenly start lactating right like you just don't want necessarily for everybody that you are including in your social Mm. group to know all of your feelings and you certainly don't want them to know all of your feelings when you're playing poker with them right so you need to be able to hide some of your emotions and i think the parvocellular oxytocin neurons are really well suited because they only project Mm. to the to the brain they release much much smaller amounts of oxytocin when they do release it and so they that is a function of oxytocin that's much more like a synaptic neurotransmitter, right? So the first, the magnocellular oxytocin, we started with that's this, cool. like what's a neurotransmitter, what's a what's a hormone, yes. and so that volume transmission is the part of oxytocin's functions that make people think about it that it works sort of like a hormone and that it kind of gets everywhere and okay. you know doesn't isn't like directed to a specific synapse whereas the parvocellular way of oxytocin release it's much more discrete and localized to a specific synapse and that is a much more synaptic function okay. of so oxytocin So what happens as
0: a What do we know about oxytocin what happens to oxytocin uh, when there is a normal development normal meaning you know you get your basic love and care and and attention and all that stuff when you're a kid and then your adult uh, your uh, adolescent years go all right versus when you have trauma when you uh, there's different types of trauma different types of trauma you know there's like abuse and there's and then there's kind of neglect and abandonment kind of trauma um uh humiliation you know the, how What do we know? What happens with oxytocin actually on the physical level? The less of it gets produced. Um, Do you know? Do we know?
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't really have that much information on it. Um, And the reason is, is because oxytocin, because it's one of those things that we've known about for a long time. Oxytocin was first discovered about 100 years ago a little bit more than that at this point. Um, And um, people have done a lot of studies with plasma oxytocin levels to try and get at these kinds of questions, but I don't actually, for lot, I don't really put a lot of faith in those okay. kinds of experiments because they are, first of all, oxytocin in the bloodstream has a half-life of about five minutes. Um, and second of all, okay. it's not clear the relationship between that circulating plasma oxytocin and what's going on in the yeah. brain. And so to really get at that question, we have to go back to animals. We have to be able to measure oxytocin, but also oxytocin receptors, because We think that the way that the the magnocellular oxytocin is getting released, the way that different species regulate, or even across development, regulate um, which which type of social interaction they're prioritizing at that point in their lives is based on the expression of the receptors of that oxytocin um, in different brain regions. So, for example, we know that um, early in development, there's a big peak in the expression of oxytocin receptors in the prefrontal cortex, and then it goes back down. And then in the medial preoptic area, we know that oxytocin receptors go up right after a rat gives uh, birth to a pup and is taking care of the pups, whereas the nucleus accumbens oxytocin receptors go up and come down uh, according to the period that we're describing for the social reward learning. So my hypothesis is, is that there are actually... Probably three, at least, uh, social critical periods. One's for the social interactions between baby and mom or baby and dad. And then the adolescent one that we're describing for peer-peer social interactions. And then a later one for either um, like in prairie voles for pair bonding behaviors or in rats and mice for this attachment from the mother to the pups, right? And so those we think that those windows are going to be regulated by the expression of oxytocin receptors or the plasticity of those receptors more than the oxytocin neurons themselves, which it's hard to grow neurons later in life. So my hypothesis is is that the neurons are just there and whether they are being listened to uh, depends on what the receptor
0: expression is. Some research. I, uh, do you know how valid this research is? Uh, suggesting that uh, people uh, that the levels of oxytocin are, are protective factors for addictions, and so if you have lower levels of oxytocin, you are more likely to to fall into addiction. So there is not, no solid research. No. Okay. No. no,
1: no. I, I mean, I am not really okay. super confident in okay. the oxytocin. Yeah. These are the studies that
0: production. these are the studies that don't get published in Nature in the Journal of Nature. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, you know, I think that a lot of these studies have relied on, uh, you know, intranasal oxytocin or plasma plasma oxytocin. And I'm not saying that they're not, um, that they're not reporting a real Mm -hmm. phenomenon. I just think that their interpretation of what they are seeing is not, um, is not, Uh, jiving with the neurobiology of these neurons. Mm -hmm. So for example, oxytocin receptors are found in the adrenal cortex. And there, when you activate them with sort of systemic oxytocin, what that does is it causes the um, uh, suppression of corticosteroid release from the adrenal cortex. And so that gives a sort of relaxed feeling um, that's just a suppression of the stress response. And in some studies, people have given oxytocin, you know, by this mechanism and said, oh, it interferes with memory. But if you look at those papers, the way that they're measuring memory is a stress response. So if you give oxytocin and then suppress the stress response, you might interpret your your. Your learning and memory study to say that it, it caused memory impairments, but really it just caused them to be less stressed out. But because stress is the readout of your memory experiment, you, you're you're misinterpreting it. So those are the kinds of things that, as a neurobiologist, I really you know obsess over. Like, are we are we are nice. we interpreting this data the nice, right way, nice. or is there some control experiment that we need to do to convince ourselves that it's you know this and not that. Nice, so. nice.
0: Nice. So I wonder, you know, if we could go to the synapses and, and talk about the synapses and um, and then maybe in the context of that, we could talk about the more specific mechanisms that MDMA works to, to, uh, to, to stimulate uh, oxytocin. Um, and if we do that, I was just, you know, I'm just thinking that maybe we could, again, for people to, to, to just show the, just talk a, a moment about the enormity of human brain uh human brain uh there's uh, 100 billion nerve cells pl- 100 plus billion nerve cells it's the amount the amount of nerve cells in our brain 100 billion that's a thousand millions that's a lot of nerve cells this is uh, about the same amount as we have stars in our milky way there's about 100 to 400 billion stars in the milky way each of those nerve cells has tons of connections with other nerve cells. So there's, let's say, a thousand, on average, a thousand connections, maybe more. Um, so then if you do the math, there's like 100 trillion, maybe a quadrillion, quadrillion connections. So the connect those connections are called synapses. And so I was thinking, you know, what would be a good analogy? Maybe two people sitting across the table. One person is always doing the talking and the other person is Always listening, so um, so we have a quadrillion discussions going on at the same time, and the speed of that discussion. There's we have discovered uh, I don't know two hundred plus neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are the chemicals that get released by this. The the, the talking is being done in the language of chemistry. So so. A few times a second, maybe two, three, four times a second. Each neuron, each of those quadrillion, in each of those quadrillion connections, there is a release of two hundred words. There is a lot of talking going on there, and you, somebody like you, is marveling on this and trying to figure out in this enormous and ungraspable complexity, and trying to just detect some patterns, and figure out what's going on. But I, I you know, so. I really like thinking about how huge and how complex this phenomenon is. It's just mind-blowing, really. Um, If we go back to the synapse, though, there are very specific mechanisms. One part, one neuron is doing the talking, the other is doing the listening. Could you tell us about just first in general, what are the mechanisms of the talking and the listening? And then Maybe later we can talk about how, when you introduce a medication into it, how the medications modify the languages used by by those by those two neurons. Now we back to two neurons, only two neurons of. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Of, uh, All right.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm going to actually have to do it in four neurons, okay, but I think I can neurons. do four. Okay. okay. All right. So I mean, basically, first, let me just say I, I totally agree with you, and and for me the. I remember the first time I was an undergraduate um, and I did my very first recording of a neuron um, receiving those signals and changing its um, synaptic uh, firing uh, potentials. I was just like, amazed. I felt like I was, you know, talking to a neuron, and that was very exciting to me. Um, and in the intervening 22 years, um, I have to say it's a really great time to be a neuroscientist because we've gotten some amazing tools that allow us to, you know, kind of uh, address that that really sometimes daunting complexity, um, but by being able to take up and be Looking at each of these synapses, kind of, and their contribution um, specifically, and that that sort of molecular genetic revolution in neuroscience really is the reason why I'm about I'm going to be able to tell you the story I'm about to tell okay, you. Great. So the story that I'm telling you is a little bit based on the stuff that we worked out in this paper, but also stuff that I worked out uh, when I was a postdoc. So the first transmitter that you need to know about in this context is glutamate. So what we're recording is we're recording from the medium spiny neurons, which are the main cells. They're like 95% of the cells in this brain region called the nucleus accumbens. And when they receive synapses from all over the brain, from the prefrontal cortex, from, um, you know, other parts of the cortex mostly, um, but also from the amygdala and other brain regions, Um, those inputs uh, onto the medium spiny neuron in the nucleus accumbens, they release a neurotransmitter called glutamate. And at this age and this synapse, glutamate is excitatory yep. so it makes the neurons fire um, more. more likely to fire an action potential what we're recording is actually a, not an action potential it's like a what we call a yep. sub-threshold response so when it, all those get summed we get a Could we potential.
0: just uh, just mention that uh, most people probably know but for those who don't know action potential is the neuron actually firing and then when right. the neuron fires that's when it goes to, to the uh, to the uh, to the axon to the the uh, terminal and and releases chemicals into so the neurons don't for the most part don't communicate with each other through the electrical signals but communicate through each other to each other through chemical signals on those synapses yes those clefts
1: that's right so the way yeah so the way that I think about it is is that um, these subthreshold responses Uh, that are all across the neuron that is picking up the signal. Let's say it's a television uh, signal, and it's picking up signal from all over. And then if enough of those signals are saying, yes, go fire fire. an action potential, then the neuron will fire an action potential. And then the information will get relayed from that from that brain region to the next brain yes. region. So, in the in the case of the nucleus accumbens, those neurons are sending projections downstream, either to the ventral pallidum or back to the VTA or somewhere else. Right. So, yeah, and so um, so the main thing that we are recording when we do a whole cell patch clamp electrophysiology in the nucleus accumbens is those um, those. Not the action potential, but the thing that gets summed and then the neuron decides if it's going to be an action potential. So the sub-threshold response um, and the threshold, meaning the threshold to fire an action potential. So um, th- we're recording those those responses to glutamate. Okay, And um, when we say that a synapse is being uh, potentiated or depressed, what we're resp- referring to is the fact that that glutamate, that same amount of glutamate trigger causes either bigger or smaller response, the same trigger, different response. And that, that change in the ability of the neuron to respond to that signal is what we're calling synaptic plasticity. Okay, so that's glutamate. That's the main one that we're going to be talking about. Um, And then the glutamatergic inputs to the nucleus accumbens, um, They, on their axons, they have receptors for serotonin, it turns out. And when serotonin binds to those receptors, it causes a different kind of plasticity, a presynaptic kind of plasticity um, that causes those um, glutamate molecules to be released um, less frequently or uh, less glutamate gets released. Once the synapse is changed by the serotonin signal, it causes the glutamate signal to be less. So as opposed to sort of classical synaptic plasticity where we were focused just on the glutamatergic response, here we're saying, okay, this isn't just one synapse, one transmitter, this is modifying the magnitude of the synaptic plasticity by serotonin. Mm. But it's even more complicated than that, because it turns out that the serotonergic inputs, which are coming from the um, dorsal raffae nucleus in this case, um, they have oxytocin receptors on Mm. them. And so when oxytocin binds to them we think they are causing serotonin to be released. And where is the oxytocin coming from? Well the oxytocin is coming from oxytocin neurons that send projections to the nucleus accumbens. So the 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 the, the The medium spiny neuron, which is the principal cell in the nucleus accumbens, is receiving indirect and direct information from oxytocin, from serotonin, and glutamate. And they're sort of working in this chain order and modifying each other. And we we have a good ability to detect this chain order because this molecular genetic revolution allows us to genetically engineer... Situations where we can just get rid of the serotonin receptors, or just get rid of the oxytocin receptors, only in the synapses that project to the nucleus accumbens, and this this ability to change the receptor composition of presynaptic inputs is the reason why we were able to, you know, define this sort of presynaptic uh, plasticity. And just to kind of give you a context Mm. of how sort of recent this this technical ability is is that when i was doing my postdoc i we we have a way of measuring whether uh, synaptic plasticity is presynaptic or postsynaptic and I, uh, I when i found that the oxytocin plasticity was presynaptic you know my postdoc advisor was like, oh, no, you know, we're never going to figure it out. And we were like, oh, no, we are going to figure it out because we have viral mediated gene transfer. And we have these cool viruses that allow us to deliver that um, genetic information presynaptically versus postsynaptically. And we have mice that allow us to knock out these receptors um, in in a specific way that only when they have this virus in this configuration, are they able to to see that signal and reduce those receptors, right? So the cool tools really allowed us to figure out the order of this and who is where and um, what are all the different inputs. And we think that the reason that the role of oxytocin and in fact, the role of serotonin in reward and social reward had been missed for so long is, is that people assume like when they, because oxytocin, we can't, oxytocin receptors, we don't have good antibodies. We don't have a good way of telling where they are because they look similar enough to vasopressin that all of the antibodies that we have can't differentiate between the two. And so the normal way of using antibodies to detect where the receptors are doesn't really work that well with oxytocin. And so people have done molecular tricks to try and get around that. And the trick that they use is by making, adding on a fluorescent protein onto the gene that is expressing um, the oxytocin receptor. So the oxytocin receptor, when it gets transcribed, is also fluorescent. But the problem is, is that um, that, that um, tr- that trick, that molecular genetic trick tells you only which cells are making the receptor, but not where the receptor is actually going because the two parts, the fluorescent part and the receptor part have to be separated or else they'll kill the cells. And so because of that, all we know um, all we knew up until that point is which cells were making it. But of course, if the receptor is presynaptically localized, then where the presynaptic receptor actually is and doing its work is a totally different brain region than where the cell that is making it is. So in this case, the cell that is making the oxytocin receptor. The cell body lives in the dorsal raphe nucleus because it's those serotonin neurons, but the receptor itself is on the presynaptic terminal inside of the nucleus accumbens. And so the, we think that this presynaptic function is why people missed it for so okay.
0: long. and the,
1: I mean, I know that's a lot of technical my brain, details. My so. brain
0: is spinning, but you know what? We have the recording <laughs> and I'm going to be re-listening to this. Okay. This, is, okay. this is real <laughs> stuff. This is great. And so how, yeah. uh, when you introduce MDMA and, uh, and you talk about MDMA stimulating oxytocin, what's the mechanism?
1: Yeah, so the mechanism right now, we're, we're, it, we're still sort of, I'm calling it a working model yep. of what it is because there's some, some weird things that we don't totally understand. But what we've been able to figure out so far is, is that um, MDMA binds to the serotonin transporter We've known that for a long time. And um, unlike serotonin, when serotonin binds to that transporter, it gets sucked up into the synapse. It's a way of kind of clearing the synapse of excess serotonin. But when MDMA binds to it, it reverses the direction of that transporter. And so now serotonin is being just dumped into the ser- into the synapse. And so it has a much more powerful serotonin releasing effect than, for example, Prozac, which binds to the receptor and just blocks it. And so it prevents the the serotonin from being vacuumed up from the synapse. But what MDMA does is it, it actually is, goes further and actually changes the direction of the vacuum and causes there to be a huge dump of serotonin. So then when that happens, what we think for now is, is that that serotonin is binding to serotonin, and this is gonna get complicated, I'm okay, just yeah, yeah. Binds to, We're binds to be serotonin. Re-listening. We're
0: gonna be re-listening, yes.
1: Um, So then that serotonin we think right now is binding to serotonin-4 receptors on the oxytocin neurons, and that is causing the oxytocin to be released and then the, re- the rest of the cascade. Okay. So that's why how we think that oxytocin is involved. But let me just warn you that that mechanism is a little bit confusing, because why would you need to have oxytocin in that chain of events? Since serotonin is being released, couldn't serotonin just bind to the serotonin receptors on the glutamate terminals directly? And we don't have a good explanation for that. Um, the way that we're thinking about it now is is that this is some sort of important mechanism for coincidence detection so the way that i think about what serotonin and oxytocin are doing together to encode this memory is that they are the oxytocin is signaling this is social this mm-hmm. is social and serotonin is signaling this feels good this okay. feels good and when you get the two of them together then you get oxytocin induced synaptic plasticity and oxytocin induced learning and in memory. Okay. Um so but that's a little bit of a provisional hand-wavy explanation Great. um but that's what we think is going on for now.
0: That sounds wonderful. Now, what implications does this explanation have for uh with MDMA and, uh, and there is uh, uh, after after uh, MDMA there's a little bit of a dip that people experience in terms of mood and energy. Uh, so what are those mechanisms then, uh, uh, those neurotransmitter me- and hormonal mechanisms afterwards that create the tiredness and create uh, might create the dip in mood a day or two days after MDMA administration? What do we know about?
1: I mean, honestly, I think that most of that is psychological. Um, I think historically we were led to believe that well, first there was the, the, the um, you know, controversy that, you know, might be killing dopamine neurons, which turned out not to be true. Uh-huh. And, then, um, and then there was this other idea that maybe what MDMA was doing was depleting serotonin from those terminals and just yeah. not, and just using them yeah. all up. And so there's this dip because, um, you know, there's just no more serotonin and they have to be remade in order to, to release again. However, if you go back and you look at some of those studies, first of all, um, they were using sort of um, the technologies that were available at the time, um, but not necessarily the modern ones that we were using now. So the way that they were identifying serotonin was by making antibodies for serotonin itself, right? And so um, these days we can do molecular tricks to identify the neurons. So we can make all serotonin neurons who have ever been serotonin neurons make green fluorescent protein all the time, whether they're making serotonin or not, right? So we can, there are molecular tricks that allow us to do that. And so, you know, whether or not there's a real depletion or, you know, the cells are dying or anything like that, we would wanna go back and use modern tools to check. And furthermore, this notion that you're depleting serotonin through this MDMA, those findings were were, were based on studies where they were giving 10 to 50 times the 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 amount amount of mdma MDMA.
0: the amount is very important yes
1: yeah very important and um also they were giving them repeated doses like you know uh, every six hours for three days in a row and it's just like a crazy amount of mdma that they were giving to give those studies and so, but I think that because there are two things like psychedelics in general are not addictive or not to have like a, a huge abuse liability, partially because I think all this critical reopening, this, this kind of allowing your mind to wander and, you know, uh, think and all of, you know, really have these deep emotional, um, experiences is exhausting. People just you know, it's oh, yeah. tiring. And I actually kind of think that that's the reason that you the critical the period closes. Yeah. Um, critical periods may be closed because it's a huge emotional yes. investment to care all the time what other people think yeah, about me, right? The lessons are very and,
0: sensitive to social cues. So yeah. that's uh, that's oxytocin right. speaking right there. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so maybe um, it's possible to me that this... this um, feeling of tiredness that people are reporting is really just, you know, after you've been hiking out of the mountain of emotional right. whatever, you know, you need a day of rest right. afterwards, you need some time to right. rest. Um, and I'm not sure that we're going, that we have evidence that that is mm-hmm. mediated by serotonin depletion. And, and to
0: be point. fair, clinical trials show, show very little, current clinical trials show very little, little dip when it's done properly with proper dosages and in proper set and setting and uh proper positive experiences so that's great how about uh, how about uh, other 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 risks so we talked about addiction it's pretty well known these drugs are not not addictive um i heard a few you know some people use mdma with alcohol for example do you Mm -hmm. know do you know that's to to me? That sounds uh, like a really bad idea, but I don't know. Is there anything?
1: I mean, we don't have any data okay, on that. No data. Um, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, there may be some studies out there. Yes. I mean, as with any drug, um, you know the risks um, are gonna be dependent on not only the set and setting, but also the doses and other mitigating factors. So I think that, you know, we wanna be very, very cautious uh, about Mm. giving these drugs to people who have a history of neuropsychiatric disease like schizophrenia, for example. Um, We don't really know enough about how those two things might interact. Um, But also, um, you know, I think You know, the example I like to give about like the importance of considering the dose is this that, you know, when I was in medical school, I remember seeing a patient who had um, what's called hyponatremic seizure. Um, He was actually schizophrenic and he had taken just uh, two gallons of water and drank it all at once because he he thought okay. we were trying to poison him and he was trying to clear oh, a system okay. of what we had given him. So even water if given in the right dose can cause seizures, yes. right? So yes. it, right so every so when we think about drugs, I think it's really really important yes. to remember yes. that how much really matters. Right, and um, it
0: goes without saying that that's why using it in a therapeutic context is the safest way. To uh, to 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 use these these uh, these drugs. So, uh, would you be able to? Is there anything else that you're concerned about in terms of MDMA and psychotherapy, and from the uh, neurobiological point of view?
1: I guess it's not really. I, I don't really have any specific things from the neurobiological point of view. But I will say from the critical period and sensitive period view, I think that people who use these drugs recreationally should be very um, mindful of the the very powerful nature of these drugs and just like when you uh, just like when you have a child and you wouldn't want to expose them to violent movies or, you know, sort of adult themed anything or expose them to somebody who might, um, you know, might take advantage of their uh sensibilities and their sensitivities. Yes. I think that people who are using these drugs should really be respectful of their power and treat themselves with the way that they would treat a child for yes. you know weeks to months yes. afterwards and be very careful about who you expose yourself to, what kind of uh, experiences you uh, expose yourself to in terms of... And Because my big worry is, is that if we don't focus on this, if we yes. don't appreciate Appreciate this this effect. Then, if we just let's say we have somebody who has PTSD because she's being abused at home, we open up this critical period. We think we've done something great, and then we send her back to her abuser, yes, right? Yes. So this is very very dangerous, and I think could end up doing more, more harm, harm than good. And so, right? And so we want to be we want to understand the mechanisms of these things. And we want to continue to do these yes. studies because these are the kinds of things that can influence the design of our from, trials.
0: If from the psychotherapy point of view, the uh, whole field of uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is already thinking about all these issues and providing them optimal experience in terms of safety dosage and therapeutically now you're talking about the harm reduction point of view where people uh, decide to use these uh, medications on their own and uh, and with mdma one of the best memes i think is uh, you know one one of them is what you're saying is be careful who you using mdma with make sure, sure that if you use mdma from the harm reduction point of view if you use mdma with somebody let's say you know and you and, and you decide to use it make sure that you actually w- want to connect with that person because you will connect with that person and if that person uh is not the right person to connect with you actually can suffer trauma from that experience so yes. um it, so that's that
1: and I, I, that's that's actually an amazingly good point, and I, I think I just want to unpack it a little okay. bit more. Um- because I do think that it's something that we need to consider when we're deciding whether or not the therapist should be um, having the experience as well. Because, you know, uh, one of the things that I really had a very hard time with when I was a medical student is being able to have sympathy for patients without having empathy. And um, and that empathic connection that I would form with the patients actually really did um, interfere with my ability to keep going in every day and was very draining draining and and it made me not have the stamina and in fact these days you know i think they are training people and you know the i think there's some studies in buddhist psychology that really focus on this ability to be sympathetic um without getting you know you don't have to um you Don't have to drown yourself in order to have sympathy for somebody Absolutely. who's or to help somebody who's drowning. Absolutely. In fact, it's probably better if you are not drowning yourself if you can help somebody um, who is drowning, and that, that right? applies and so, to
0: psychotherapists in general doing this very, yeah. Very, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and with these drugs, I think it's, it's something that we should pay even more, even attention, more attention to because, and
0: there's, of course, yeah. issues of, oh, I, I mean. I don't think anybody would suggest uh, that psychotherapists should use MDMA during the therapy session. I think that's a a big mistake, but uh, there's a question of whether they should be using that during training, which is a whole other question, but yeah, but, uh, but...
1: But also, like if you've depend, you know, depends on how long this lasts in humans, right? So if it really does last, uh, you know, a year, then if you do the MDMA and then you think, oh well, I'm not doing it with this person, but I'm empathically suddenly open, uh, I've got this critical period open, right? Then then we might want to think carefully about how much of a break a person gives between the training where they were doing the MDMA before they're going into the real.
0: That's a great point. You know, that's a great point. Another great point, and, and a big ethical issue, is uh, in terms of the patient's clients' uh, openness during uh, psychotherapy, and and of course those uh, the therapists are there, and this is a very 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 important issue from the point of view of psychotherapy because the the, the clients are very likely to develop to be feel very close and open to the therapists. Uh, so that's why we have two therapists for those dosing sessions which is the best protection for it but also you know there's a question of touch which is a a question that needs to be on on the table and it needs to be uh you know if at this point touch is not uh ruled out but touch is an extremely powerful uh modality in terms of connecting so uh you know uh, use if touch is to be used, how it's to be used, how the consent uh, is being negotiated ahead of time around that, and all all these issues are so so important in therapy. That's why we are working, and lots of therapies are working. and the and, and the the goal for all the associations right now that uh, when this therapy comes, it will to be developed those specialized ethic guidelines that have to consider all these issues. They are very important issues. Um, So that's great you know i'm really glad you brought these issues up could i ask you another question about ssris what uh, what what's your thinking on ssris obviously ssris have uh, been uh, the difficulty with ssris is this i'm you know i don't have any particular opinion pro or against ssris uh, the research seems to be sh- quite mixed on the efficacy of SSRIs. There is the the logic that, of course, SSRIs are uh, big money makers for the pharma because because just if you look at what's going on, it's an ongoing use of a, of a uh, of a drug that blocks the reuptake of the, the these chemicals, so they stay in those synaptic clefts for a bit longer. Uh, and but it's it's constant use. You know, versus of course there are things like psychedelic assisted therapies. We're talking about one administration, maybe two, maybe three. Yeah. Done. You know, so it's yeah. a very different system. But what do you think about the? What do we know about the actual efficacy of SSRIs?
1: I mean, I think that um, the evidence is suggesting that um, they're not really as efficacious as we originally thought when we when they first got approved. We had very different standards for approving medications, and they were approved based on, um, I believe, you know, sort of very, very severe patients showing some um, efficacy in those patients, but now it's been extended and used for all kinds of, you know, less severe and younger. And I think as people are going back and redoing those, those, um, those uh, studies, they are showing that, well, for those other uses, they're not really that effective. And I, I think that, um, you know, what I really love about the psychedelics is this idea that maybe we're going to actually cure these yes. diseases rather than have to give the drugs forever and ever. And, um, you know, I think that uh, this should be, this could be a turning point for neuropsychiatric psychiatric disease, right? Because I, I think that... Um, the potential to find something that actually cures is a game changer. And everybody agrees with that. And I think that's where there's so much enthusiasm around this. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Yes. Uh, the, the thing about placebo effects is, is that they're, um, you know, they're strong and possibly interacting with some of these very mechanisms of oxytocin and, you know, feeling cared for. And so, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do these these trials, especially on these drugs that, you know, it's, it's really obvious when somebody is on MDMA, yes, right? Yes. Like there's, no, there's not a placebo that we can no. give that would fool anybody, including the patients. Right. And so in terms of uh, SSRIs, you know, I don't know uh, what you know, I'm not even 100% sure that the mechanism that people have been suggesting that, you know, you're sort of bathing the synapse in serotonin really makes sense because the time courses don't ma- match, right? SSRIs, typically you take them and you don't start to feel better for, you know, mm-hmm. weeks to months afterwards, right? Whereas the acute serotonin bathing effects, um, you know, happen um Uh, quickly. And so, you know, I think one idea that was proposed early on is is that all of the antidepressant drugs work by causing internalization of serotonin receptors. But then um, it's my understanding that that theory sort of lost steam when other effective interventions like ect didn't do the same thing so you know i'm sort of hopeful that as we come into this modern era of molecular neuroscience um that will be and we have these very very powerful tools that have that we can use the the not only the successes in psychedelics to understand how psychedelics work but also potentially to use the reverse translation approach to say, okay, this is what works. Let's compare that to other things that don't work as well and figure out what are the overlapping mechanisms. And then maybe we will get a better understanding of why SSRIs don't work that well, but a little bit. Um, Talk therapy works not that well, but a little bit. And why psychedelics are able to work you know kind of exponentially better than either of those things by themselves and the, and, right? and the
0: theory that you're working on is 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 very telling about why it's so difficult to make change as a in adulthood change to your relational patterns those patterns become automatic subconscious kind of patterns of relating you know to be paranoid and mistrustful of relationships it, you, you, you're you not sure, like the therapist might tell you, well, maybe you're a bit paranoid, but you're kind of not sure. Maybe I am paranoid, or maybe that person is mistrustworthy, untrustworthy, yes. you know? So it's, 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 it is very difficult, once you're stuck in a pattern, it's very difficult to change that pattern, to even have an awareness of that pattern, you know? So what those studies show with MDMA-assisted therapy uh, are, there's so much. Of course, we have to take it step by step. There's so much promise, and I, you know, I, I agree with you that we might be, uh, you know, experiencing right now going through a, a mental health revolution that, and that these therapies might be very helpful to a lot of people. What do you think? Maybe to finish this up, well, one thing before uh, about just the kind of global issues. You know, I'm just thinking about. Uh, I I myself I feel extremely connected with the green lining that you know that is this planet and I think about the suffering of the ecosystem and the the ailments that we are inflicting on 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 ourselves through destroying the the our ground our the the our you know natural ecosystem is is so depressing and and somehow that we do not have the cognitive tools, we don't have the systems, economic and political systems. Uh, Our leaders and people in power are thirsty for power. Uh, Somehow, we are not going in the right direction. Do you think that things like MDMA-assisted therapy psychedelic-assisted therapies that they can have in some way, have you thought about the more global big issues that they can actually allow facilitate the changes in our global consciousness that we that we need to save ourselves our children and this this green planet this beautiful planet that we live on
1: well, um, yeah, I've, I've heard this argument before, and it's been, it's been asked to me you know, before, is this the way to save the planet? And I guess I, I am a little bit of a skeptic about this because I think that one of the most powerful uh, features of these drugs is that um, they, if you just reopen critical periods and then do not have a cognitive reappraisal, right then you just come back from that experience either believing what you already believed or believing what you already believed with a religious fervor oh, okay. and and so i think that you know, and and we know this already, that these are not the magic bullet, because if they were the magic bullet, then after all the hippies used the psychedelics in the 60s, there would be no more racism, there would be no more sexism, and everybody would have embraced the planet. But that's not what happened. And in fact, you know, there's still a very, very, strong blind spot in the psychedelics community for example um you know all these people who are users who you know haven't thought about the sort of uh lingering effects of patriarchy and sexism. Mm-hmm. You know, the number of times I've gone to conferences where I'm literally the only woman is not different between general neuroscience conferences and psychedelics conferences, right? Um, similarly, I think that if you give psychedelics and you have, and you're somebody who thinks that the whole global warming thing is a hoax and All you're exposed to is other people who think that as well. You're going to keep believing that and probably believe it even stronger. And you're going to be even more paranoid that people are trying to fool you. Whereas I think Mm -hmm. that if you take these psychedelic drugs and you go out into nature and you experience that awe that we all feel when we see giant you know, mountains and trees, then yeah, maybe you will have that crap cognitive reappraisal that you need to value the planet and to prioritize that. So yeah, I mean, I think that the the power, the psychedelics are, are extremely powerful, but I don't think that we should get stuck in the trap that they're the magic bullet. And we can't just, because we know, for example, like oxytocin, it makes Within-group interactions very strong, but it also can make out-group interactions much more. Uh, I was going to ask you
0: about that because uh, there's, there's yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that in-group yeah. bias mechanism that uh, that kicks in with and yeah. makes it more tribal, more, more
1: yeah. yeah. And so I'm not sure that we really want to uh, encourage, and, you know, maybe if we can understand more about these mechanisms, you know, I focused Mm -hmm. on oxytocin, but we know that MDMA also releases uh, vasopressin, Mm -hmm. which might be the the one that's responsible for this tribalism aspects of it. So maybe someday in the future, we can figure out Mm -hmm. a way to give a vasopressin antagonist with a MDMA and that might reduce the tribalism aspect of it. But, you know, I just, like, i don't want to um i don't want to overstate their um you know they're not a panacea they're not the the miracle drug that's going to save all of our problems the the environmental problems are big ones and that demand our serious attention in their own right and i'm not sure that i believe that psychedelics will make that that terribly difficult job easier but Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe there is a, a way for it. I think I think I heard that um one of the people who started that um, that very um lefty um environmental group uh, uh extinction rebellion i think one of the co-founders is very um excited about psychedelics so you know maybe i'm wrong but i that my hunch is is yeah. that we don't want to put too much stock in this
0: yeah thank you and so is there anything else you would like to add do you think there's any anything else that that would
1: yeah i guess that i just i just want to say one more thing um about the octopuses because yeah. i think that
0: <laughs> Octopus, of because, I was good at.
1: Yeah, you know, okay. Um, you know, yeah, I mean I think a lot of people got excited about that because it was, you know, sort of a Gee Whiz exper- experiment. But to me, that experiment was so um powerful and really changed the way that I think about things uh, in a very dramatic way because, um, you know, my lab focuses a lot on neural circuits and I'm, you know, very focused on the nucleus accumbens and, you know, what's happening at the synaptic level. And I think the intuition in neuroscience um, has been for the last 30 or 40 years to really focus on rodents and basically any animal that has a brain that's very similar to the human brain. And that has been the strategy to maximally understand what's going on in the human brain. And we've come up with things like, you know, the nucleus accumbens is important for that. The amygdala is important for that. And um, more and more, I think we're focused on the circuit and and anatomical questions um, as a mechanistic explanation. But the octopus study really sort of challenged that interpretation because an octopus brain is totally different than our brain. There is no, there's no cortex, there's no amygdala, there's no nucleus accumbens, there's no default mode network. None of those brain regions exist um, in an octopus. And yet you know, here's this drug that they've never seen before. It's totally synthetic. It's not like they co-evolved with MDMA, but because it can mimic the effects of serotonin, which is a very ancient neurotransmitter, um, you know, it's able to induce a pro-social behavior that looks very much like the pro-social behavior that we see in humans and mice and um, in an animal that is not normally social, right? So these octopuses are um, normally asocial. They will kind of, they will suppress their asociality for like brief windows of time during mating, but most of the time they're asocial. And so if MDMA is able to overcome that asociality and induce a prosocial behavior, then what that tells us fundamentally is is that the the circuits and the brain regions are sort of... um, they're just one instantiation of how the molecules get the Mm -hmm. job done. And basically I think that that makes me reorient my efforts at mechanism to understanding what's happening at the molecular level, because I think what this is saying is, is that, uh, you know, our understanding of what the nucleus accumbens per se is doing is not as, not telling us as much about it as we think uh, because the octopus brain has solved it in a different way but it also means that if we can understand how it works in octopus and the neural circuits and the brain regions in an octopus uh, we may be able to take what we've learned in the mouse and the human brain and compare and say, okay, well they don't have an accumbens, but guess what? They have an octopressin ser- uh, mm-hmm. neuron, they have a serotonin neuron, they have a glutamatergic neuron, and when those synapses come together in this configuration, then you're able to get this behavior, and that tells us he- really important sort of what are the rules, what are the mm-hmm. what are the motifs that are replicated across you know hundreds of millions of. You years of evolution yeah and so that to me we I think, parted, and the other we part parted of,
0: with octopus about what 100 million years ago no on an evolution no, like,
1: 500, 500, 500 million,
0: million years ago we parted on an evolution and and we became more social and the octopus is just like uh, we just mate and we go apart and then you
1: No, no, actually, actually, that's not it. And so that was another big surprise. So it looks like all of the other cephalopods, but octopus are social. So, uh, and so octopus, it seems like became asocial later. So we think based on this evidence that, and other evidence Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, there's something about being an octopus that made it beneficial to be asocial, but there is one species of Social octopus that we're gonna study later, okay. um, but so this is like a rich avenue, and and I think it's um the the other part of it that it, I think it tells us is is that you know our our. Desire to be social is old, really old. Mm. I mean, really, dinosaurs have come and gone. In the interim, um, for how long we've been social and these social mechanisms are built into our DNA in a very fundamental level that goes beyond whether or not we have a complicated cortex mm-hmm. or not. Um, and
0: we are we are so. kind of clouds of chemistry, and we change a little bit and a lot of changes. So does that have with octopuses that? would that have an implication? I was just thinking as you were speaking, would that have implication for something like psychopathy that would be more, let, let's say if psychopathy uh, is not trauma-based, but that kind of psychopathy that's more constitutionally based that, you know, let's say some psych- psychopaths lack the, the empathy, uh, just biologically kind of, would, would that have that kind of study that then introducing MDMA might trigger empathy?
1: maybe i mean we don't know we don't know i I sort of as a as a um thought experiment i actually uh, wrote a chapter for david linden's book that was like uh, 40 neuroscientists tell you something cool about the brain that's not the title but it's something like that and basically um you know the thought experiment was look octopuses are able to do um some really cool behaviors that we thought were you know kind of special to humans and maybe dolphins and elephants and some You know, ravens and scrub jays. Um, And so could we use this information to understand things like social cognition and theory of mind and, you know, theory of mind is the kind of thing that psychopaths are really good at and autistic kids are not Mm -hmm. good at. Right. And so, um, you know, can we use this um, comparison to be able to understand something fundamental about that, and then, you know, can we use MDMA to try and yeah. correct that um, for for, psycho- for psychopaths or
0: wonderful? You know, I I I, I uh, love talking to uh, Of course, the the complex. I love the the, the complexity. How you just touching on the surface of the complexity that you said, but I also love your. Uh, how measured you are in your, uh, you know, how you really model a proper scientific approach. You are measured in your conclusions, and you're trying to stay close, close to the data, which is which is really wonderful. And um, anything else, Ghul, or should we should we end here? Should I let you go?
1: Okay. I, it will be it will so, be difficult,
0: but know. I will be uh, re-listening. To this to this okay. interview and it's been such an honor to to have you go here it's it's just wonderful thank you so much
1: thank you so much i it's been really a pleasure i've really enjoyed talking to you thank you